2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is your host, Aaron. Before we get going, I want to tell you about a different podcast called The Message. So The Message is an eight-part series. It comes out weekly, and they cover the decoding of a message from outer space that was received 70 years ago. Um, You can follow a top team of cryptologists as they attempt to decipher, decode, and understand the alien message. It's a co-production between Panoply and GE Podcast Theater, which is unlocking the secrets of healing with sound technology. You can subscribe to The Message on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Our second sponsor is Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, in just a few minutes, you can invest in professionally vetted real estate investments. So why don't you join thousands of other investors by registering at no cost at realtyshares.com slash longform. You will be supporting the show, which begins right now. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I'm here with the atavists, Evan Ratliff and Longform's Max Linsky. Hi. That's all of us. Hey, guys. All here. Uh, on the show this week, I talked to Ed Caesar. He is a prolific freelancer out of the UK. Uh, you might have caught recently had a New Yorker story where he figured out who owned this crazy mansion in London. Sorry, it was great. I, I wouldn't put his work in any particular uh, bucket. It's all excellent, and it uh, is quite a diversity of curiosities and interests. Did you guys talk at all about like the culture of you know uh, like long form writing in the UK? We did. We did. I mean, it was a, it was a real. Is it Ed Caesar and like? Two other people, or Ed I think there's maybe like... like a dozen other people. Okay. But you know, we talked about how like um, when uh, one new outlet opens up uh, out of London, that can um, like double the amount of uh, available space uh, for this kind of work uh, in the entire uh, country. I think the question I was asking was. Are there enough people there that we can go do live shows in Europe? The answer is clearly yes. Fantastic. Clearly, clearly yes. What do we need? Three? <laughs> <laughs> Audience of three, we're in. Um, but uh, this is a really good, uh, really good talk. I, I, I recommend it. Okay, uh, just say like um, you just off the top of your head, you had to recommend something else. What would it be? Iced coffee. Guess number two. Your second favorite thing in the world. Mailchimp. It's the best way to do an email newsletter. The Atavist relies on it. Uh, Longform relies on it. I'm pretty sure the people who rent desks in our office, some of whose names I don't even know, <laughs> they rely on it. Mailchimp. All right. Now here's Aaron with Ed Caesar. Welcome, Ed Caesar. Thanks so much for having me. What I wanted to talk about was um, some of the writing you've done about Congo, which I think is actually the first of your work that I came across. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. A big part of the premise of of some of the writing you've done about Congo is here is this conflict that has killed more people than any war since World War II that barely even appears in newspapers, um, both in England and in America. So I'm, I'm interested in what attracted you to that conflict as a journalist. 
So I did my big piece about Congo for British GQ. That was my second big story for them. I'd yeah. been to Iran to do a story about like the party people of Iran. Yeah. I was trying to do American-style, long-reported journalism. And one of the places where you could do that in the UK was British GQ. They had the space... Yeah, there wasn't like a huge tradition of it, but they had the space. If you had a good idea, they had um, editors who were like turned on to all the stuff that you guys read and I read. Yeah. So I did this Iran piece, which they really liked, and they said, you know, what's next? What do you want to do? And I'd be to Rwanda a couple of times as went, a reporter, or just I uh, went once touristic purposes. Yeah, I went once <laughs> with my wife. Okay, and uh, I'd won a prize in the UK, which came with a travel bursary. And I'd read Philip Gurevich's book, uh, We Wish to Inform You, uh, about the Rwandan genocide, the yeah. aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, which is an incredible book. Yeah, which is based on his New Yorker reporting. Yeah. Of, for, for, yeah. You know, I just wanted to go and see it. I wanted to go and just nosy around. What is that like being on that sort of uh, cusp of uh, pro-amateurism uh, in journalism when you're starting out in the UK? Because I know that you know, in the U.S., there's kind of a system that produces writers. There's a lot of different magazines. Uh, the options seem a lot narrower. Uh, yeah, there's no the, system. No. Okay. So, like, how did you even get the ambition to do American-style magazine journalism? Um, I was a – my first job was as a reporter for the uh, independent newspaper. So I was, like, yeah. a feature writer. And I was just writing endlessly, you know, like 10,000 words a week, you know, like five features. Wow. None of which I knew anything about. It was just like, go, you know, 2,000 words on the death of the paparazzi. Just like hit it. Yeah. You know, you can make three phone calls. We need it by six. You know, it's like yeah. it was that was really what it was. And it was an incredible place to work, though, because they had all these um, brilliant people there who turned out this mag this newspaper on a very small staff. And they were all super bright and they all read very widely. And I had some great editors there who put this stuff under my nose effectively. Yeah. Said, this is the best stuff in the world. You know, they all read it, New Yorker, Vanity Fair, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading a few of those stories and just thinking, well, why can't I do that? I read the Sebastian Younger piece about the Niger Delta. Yeah. I think it was called Blood Oil. And he went upriver to like meet with rebels who were taking Westerners hostage, and it was incredibly dramatic and vivid. And I was like, this is just so much more interesting than what I'm doing. Like, why can't I do it? Yeah. And so I essentially tried to engineer my career so that I could eventually do it. What kind of a training is it like doing these rapid 2,000-word pieces for a newspaper? Um, what kind of skills do you feel like you picked up from, yeah. from that period? It's just a very, very different muscle. It rewards kind of quick thinking uh, the ability to Google efficiently. Yeah. The ability to somehow not just get totally freaked out that there's a big 2,000-word hole in the newspaper tomorrow that you have to fill and there's yeah. three hours to fill it. I mean, do you end up in desperate situations there yeah, where you were just it was appalling. down the wire? It was appalling. It was so hard. And, and But also, like, quite cool going home at the end of the day thinking, well, you know, I just about got through that and yeah. there's something in the paper tomorrow. Um. I should say, though, that the independent who knew that I was ambitious to do longer stuff tried to make that happen for me. Yeah. So it's not like it was just we were just churning it out. You mm -hmm. know, I went with the family of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, yeah. who was the uh, Russian jailed billionaire yeah. oligarch. I went out to Siberia to his 
prison with his family. You know, they sent me to do that, which was unbelievably cool. Yeah. I went on the road with John Bon Jovi. I went to like three on a th- you know three cities of his world tour and just like hung out with Bon Jovi and the lads. You know, <laughs> it was amazing. How, how old were you? I mean, you, you must 26, have been, yeah, 20, quite well, yeah, like twenty five. Yeah. Did you go to journalism school? No, I sort of winged it in that I was um, attempting to somehow be a screenwriter. Turns out I'm very bad at that. <laughs> I left university thinking, yeah, of course I'll write screenplays, and then yeah. you know someone will pick one up, and you know I will live in gold leaf for the rest of my life and I was very bad at doing that and I used to read screenplays for like you know 50 pounds ago and uh, at a certain point my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife just said you've got to stop living at your mother's house you need a job that pays you know if you want to write for money go and do it yeah just sit around thinking about it yeah uh, which was a healthy embracing um, conversation to have and I actually looked for journalism you know internships I got one at The Independent. I wrote a couple of pieces that they liked, basically for free. And then they gave me a staff job. Well, I'm, I'm interested. And so as you saw that opportunity to transition from the newspaper stuff to doing these more magazine-style pieces um, without established older mentors and people were filling those roles, how did you figure out what you were doing? I just read a lot. Yeah, I would also, and I've continued to do this all the way through, I w- if I felt like someone could help me out by if I could email them or call them, I would just do it. Yeah. Like, and I've carried on doing that. You know, like I um I called Patrick Radden Keefe. Yeah. About a story which I was stuck on. Yeah. And he was so cool. He really helped me out. What and like? How do you frame a request? I mean, I, think I just said like I'm a reporter. I'm you know I I'm doing this. Yeah. I really liked your stuff here. This seems like a kind of similar thing. And I wondered whether you'd ever run into the same kind of problems or. I had to learn everything uh, pretty much myself. But, you know, I did stories for the Sunday Times Magazine of London. I did stories for British GQ. And the editors there were also reading all this stuff and had their own ideas. So it's not like I was doing it completely on my own, but there just isn't a system. There just wasn't a system. Um, And there's only a few. I mean, the outlets are, you know, four or five. Minuscule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we're talking about, like, I, I don't know, there's probably... 20 feature writers working uh, out of the UK publishing in, in, in British magazines now. I mean, other than like there's stuff like London Review of Books, but in terms of the kind of work you do, which is mostly going into the field and, and reporting from around the world, that's not like a huge profession right now. No, it's not. Um, it's actually, you know, this Guardian Longreads site has actually changed, starting to change things a bit because there are, you know, there's more yeah. opportunities. And to- they're doing something almost every day. Yeah, I think it's three times a week. But British GQ still does incredible stuff. You know, like I do stuff for them still, and I have a really good relationship with them. Yeah. To come back to the question, Congo was like, I pitched them. I said, I've been to Rwanda twice. I went there once with my wife, like on holiday for 10 days. You can go to Rwanda as a, like a tourist? Yeah. It's not a big tourist destination. I mean, the only thing that people come to see really are the gorillas and the genocide museum and but we went all around. We hired a guide to like drive us around. We went to really remote places. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, and I wanted to come back and do a story there. So I did a story for the Sunday Times magazine about post-genocide justice, yeah. which I was really proud of at the time. I'm still quite proud of. And you know, after that, I thought, you know, Congo's just adjacent. There's this terrible war. Like I somehow have a feel for the 
you know, the territory a little bit as an outsider. And like, no one's writing about this. When you encounter a challenge like that, where you're like, for some reason, no one's writing about this. It's a huge issue. And yet there has to be some, I won't say there's a reason why people aren't writing about it, but there's a, a challenge um, clearly to dramatizing that conflict yeah. for an international audience. So when you're sort of uh, fighting uphill from the beginning in terms of um, people's understanding and interest in the topic, how do you formulate that in, into a story? In the Congo, it was actually sort of easy because the reporting wasn't easy. But once you had it, it was all so profoundly shocking yeah. that all you had to say was, this terrible thing happened, nobody's writing about it, then all these other terrible things are happening and nobody knows about them. And, like, you know, you did have the bones of a story there. Mm -hmm. I mean, Congo, Congo was... I mean, I was so green in terms of foreign reporting. I really didn't know what I was doing. I got into a lot of trouble... Had a terrible car crash where I almost died. Like you know, <laughs> there was a, you know, we flipped a Mitsubishi Pajero going at about sixty on a road and flipped it over three times. Had to climb out the back window and you know we were surrounded by militiamen with guns. It was the, I mean, just horrific. You know, I was totally out of my depth. When you arrive in Congo, you're a young person who's done really no conflict reporting. Yeah. Who do you talk to? Who? How? how do, what's the first few steps in a country like that? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd done a lot of work before I turned up there um, to try and talk to reporters who'd been there. Yeah. So, um, and I'd worked with Lindsay Adario in Rwanda, who is a who's an incredible photographer who's won like the Pulitzer with the New York Times. Yeah. And, um, she had, uh, you know, taught me a lot while I was in Rwanda. And she had some contacts in Congo, like, so I used her fixer and her fixer, you know, got me a, someone who he uh, said was a very good driver, who was not a very good driver. But, you know, I learned that the hard way. I knew where to stay when I was in Goma. Mm -hmm. I just really started, like, doing a story like I would do a story anywhere, like find some interesting stuff to, interesting people to talk to. Um, I went to the, you know, I went to a village. I heard there'd been like a massacre in a village. And like, so I went there and talked to people. I mean, it's like, you know, if there was a fire down the street here, you'd do the same thing. And when you're out among the people, are you clear on what kind of a story you're trying to build? Or are you just trying to find a seed to start from? Yeah, I just thought like all the stuff that I liked had scenes of some kind. Mm -hmm. I sort of had some kind of subliminal understanding of, you know, what I was trying to do and then I just wrote this piece and it's pretty much almost exactly like my first draft which is I just felt like I knew how to do it yeah when you're in a situation like that and, and you're pursuing scenes and you're, you're here there was a massacre here I'm going to go there and talk to someone and then you also have a more zoomed out history and and sort of describing the overall conflict how do you seek to balance sort of the first person reporting with the, the larger um, sort of uh, more newspapery reporting. Um, these are the Tutsis and the Hutus. This conflict yeah, yeah, started yeah. here. This Rwandans reinvaded. I mean, it's a really, really complex history to bring to bear. I don't think I had a formula. <laughs> yeah. I think I just started with a scene. I just started with the thing that seemed most interesting, mm -hmm. um, which is this guy. There was, a, there was a, a headmaster of a school where some kids had been killed. And he didn't have any shoes on, which I thought was pretty interesting. He was like the head, you know, he spoke three languages or, you know, but he didn't have any shoes on. He was the headmaster of this school. And, you know, some kids had been killed by these FDLR militia. Yeah. And I thought, right, well, like, that's the most interesting thing I've got. 
Like, I'll start with that. And then at a certain point, I'm going to have to explain what the hell, you know, we're all doing here and why I'm telling you this. So I'd like pull back and tell the history. I'd read a ton of books. Uh, you know, I'd read some incredible books about Congo. So I felt like I had some kind of handle on that. And then I was like, well, you know, what else is happening? And in fact, that's not a bad way to do that kind of reporting, like scene, explain, uh, you know, scene, scene, bit more explain, you know, finish with an image of some kind, which is essentially how that piece went. But I probably wouldn't have formulated it like that. I just didn't know what I was doing. You said that you screwed a lot of stuff up um, beyond flipping a car three times, which is clear has clear drawbacks. What what were your biggest mistakes? Or the I just think I was very um, I wasn't risk averse enough. Mm. I really didn't know what I was doing in terms of how risky stuff was, and I, I think I got very lucky, in fact, because I was like traveling, you know, sometimes at night in a you know in a four by four outside of Goma. I mean, if something had happened you know nobody's going to know about it you're also um for those listening at home a uh, uh six uh six plus foot tall six um, five yeah six five pounds um very uh very not um rwandan looking uh man so you must have stood stood out pretty pretty sharply i, I stand out in yeah. a lot of places once you realize now that that you were doing risky things um and that you didn't necessarily want to be doing that uh forever how do you regard risk now? Do you have a, a line that you're not willing to cross in terms of where you'll go, uh, how bad a situation you'll put yourself in? Yeah, I don't. Do, you know, I don't do a lot of conflict reports. I've done like some big kind sort of conflict and post-conflict stories. Yeah, you know, I don't get a big buzz off being frightened. You know, I have two small children now. Um, changes things. Yeah, I went to the Central African Republic to do a story there, which was completely terrifying. Um, but luckily, I was surrounded by kind of uh, quite flippant French dudes who all wore double denim the whole day long and, you know, smoked 50 cigarettes a day <laughs> and were just generally so much cooler than I was, you know, under pressure um, that I felt kind of okay. Yeah. But that was a really horrific situation. You know, people were being killed like in the street, in, you know, pretty much in front of us. Yeah. And people were firing weapons in all directions. It was really chaotic and quite scary and I you know that kind of freaked me out and I thought actually there's not a huge amount more of this I want to do in my life hey this is Aaron I want to pause things briefly for a word from our sponsor Prudential you may have noticed that over the course of the day you make many many decisions and those tend to wear out your brain and one of the possible side effects of such brain wear is procrastination. I suffer from it. You may suffer from it. If I didn't suffer from it, I would be recording this two days ago instead of seven minutes before Max wants me to have this episode done. It is a thing that affects people's lives. But one way that you may not be aware that it's affecting your life is in the savings for your retirement. Uh, if you want to have money and not be broke when you're old, you need to start thinking about it now. Uh, I don't think you should look at yourself as lazy if you don't want to think about it, but you might think of yourself looking backwards when you're old that's stupid so what i want you to go do is go uh go to bringyourchallenges.com it's a website about procrastination and other behaviors that get in the way of saving for retirement it's brought to you by prudential they've got a lot of great info there i recommend checking it out today it's of course free thank you prudential our second sponsor is masterclass they are making it possible for anyone to learn from the best in the world what exactly does that mean? Uh, take James Patterson. Man has sold some books. 
you'd like to learn about writing from James Patterson, you can with Masterclass. The class consists of video lessons and a workbook. The video lessons are beautifully shot by award-winning directors. The whole thing adds up to a brand new approach to learning. Could you learn acting from Dustin Hoffman? Could you learn tennis from Serena Williams? How about photography with Annie Leibovitz? These are unprecedented access to the best people in their fields. For about 90 bucks, you get lifetime access to the class plus all the materials. So go to masterclass.com slash longform. That's masterclass.com slash longform to learn more and support the show. Here I am back with Ed Caesar. It's been interesting talking on this show to people about their first experiences uh, with danger while reporting. And it, it always strikes me that people will say, well, now I have more of an internal um, clock that, or an internal scale that says this is safe, this is unsafe. But yeah. I'm assuming when you're out there for the first time, you don't know if this is a three out of 10 on the danger scale no, or a nine don't. out of 10. And until you've seen a bunch of dangerous situations, you really have, I would have no idea uh, the difference between uh, a life and death situation and I'm um, just in a car. I, I mean, think that's that's dead right. It's yeah. like, you just don't know. And um, part of you's thinking, would John Lee Anderson have carried on or would he have turned back? Yeah. You're like, I don't know the stuff that he knows. Right. And he probably doesn't know everything because you can't know everything. That's the point. It's like, if I go down this road at this time, is it more dangerous? Like, you just can't know everything. So you're constantly, like, making all these choices based on you've got to get the story, you've got a limited amount of time to get the story, but you also want to, you know, come home. Yeah. Uh, I have huge responsibilities to, you know, my wife and kids that I take very seriously. You know, my dad died when I was two years old, and I'm like, I do not want to leave my children <laughs> with no father. And it's like it's something I take really seriously but also I feel like you know you are doing good work this stuff matters yeah you know if you know I'm not saying I don't have this very big egotistic view about reporting but um, you know if I didn't do that piece in the Central African Republic I, did, I, I didn't see another big feature about the Central African Republic in a British publication right so it's like it's either me or it's nothing so what led you to want to do a book I did this book I didn't want to do any book. Only, I did this, this I did this book. book. <laughs> Tell us what the book is called. It's called we... Two Hours, The Quest yeah. to Run the Impossible Marathon. It's available now. It's available now. Yes. It is about the world's greatest marathon runners and uh, this Everest-like event that we may see in the future of the sub-two-hour marathon. But it's also about the uh, sort of tortured lives and uh, athletic brilliance of this very small group of elite marathon runners, mostly in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And what happened was a guy called Sammy Wanjiru fell off a balcony and died in 2011. Kind of a love triangle. In right? a love triangle. It was more like, I don't know if you could actually draw the shape of the love <laughs> object that he was in. But he had, he had several. It was rhomboid. <laughs> he had several girlfriends and people who would call themselves his wife. And he was a big drinker. But he was also the Olympic marathon champion. And at the age of 24... He, you know, had an argument with his wife about the other woman in his bed and fell off a balcony and hit his head and died. Uh, and it didn't get a huge amount of play, that story, because marathon running isn't a big sport anywhere. Yeah. But I thought it was pretty interesting that this guy who 
should have been living a monk-like life. Yeah. You know, absolutely committed to his discipline, what have you, was a boozer and a womanizer and had died at 24 in a kind of, you know, this weird circumstances. So I persuaded the Sunday Times magazine, who I was on contract with at that time, to let me go and do the story. And when I was out in Kenya, I was like, this is just unbelievable. Like, there are hundreds and thousands of people who are trying to be professional runners. It's like, how many of these guys can ever make money? You know, what, what's going on? It was just one of those, like, weirdly amazing narrative landscapes you thought like why don't i know anything about this yeah and the more i kind of dug into it i thought "Mm, maybe this is a book you know maybe this is something that's longer than just about sammy wanjiru what were your primary access points to get into the world of of high level running i just went to kenya a lot yeah and uh i met the guys i tried to find out who my characters were i worked out recently i'd taken 42 flights in the reporting of two hours um, I spent a lot of time in East Africa, but I also followed them out here to races and to you know Europe and what have you. And I was really feeling out the whole time, trying to do my reporting, but also just trying to feel out like like what is actually the story here because I didn't have a story. I just had like a topic. I had like this broad, yeah, sort of seemingly limitless topic, and I had to find a way of like going from the start to the finish. Yeah, and eventually I met Joffrey Mutai, who was one of the world's great marathon runners. 20302, uh, which was the fastest uh, marathon ever run in Boston. Unofficial, though. Right? Unofficial world yeah. record, but it was the fastest by nearly a minute that anyone had ever run. In 2011, he broke the course record in New York by nearly three minutes. He was an unbelievable athlete, the best in the world at the time I started the book. But also, when I met him, just a reflective, uh, interesting, conflicted, brilliant person, generous like do you want to come and stay in my camp sure you know like just knows no um protection around him really he had a manager in europe who was helpful but didn't get in the way i didn't have to go through publicists yeah anytime i wanted to do something i would just text him and say can i come to kenya and see you he's like yeah this has been kind of a theme on this show with um a lot of people who who write about boxing um in that these some of these lesser known sports like boxing or running you can get direct contact with people that you're never going to get with the yankees or um arsenal uh you're you can actually basically become part of their entourage um what was what was it like developing these relationships with these runners over over a period of years it felt really rewarding actually just to to stay with someone and watch them do incredible stuff over a period of months and years and yeah. and to know what it meant to them so like i would show up at the at the berlin marathon watching joffrey try to break you know the world record in berlin in 2012 and i knew at that point how much it meant to him and i could i could go with him from the hotel room out into the park to the start line and i could see everything i was right there you know I was I would drive in an emissionless BMW right next to him as he was running. It, it's not just cool just to like be near that very interesting stuff while it's happening, but you just think, how could I do this with another sport? I don't. I I would never want to be a sports reporter anyway because you know like game scores and stuff don't really interest me. But this seemed to be about much more than sports. You know, yeah. there was so much at stake, and they were so little known, and I just. You know, the whole thing was intoxicating, and I still actually get goosebumps thinking about the actual reporting of it. 
you know, it was so fun. Well, and I think what you, you did very effectively in the book that made me interested is showing how running is in some ways the most primal and reduced battle um, against human limitations. We have better and better basketball seasons, but people don't say, wow, uh, Steph Curry is um, pushing against the human limitation of three-point shooting, right? He shoots 40-plus percent, but the limitation would be 100%. In the case of these runners, in some ways, they're butting up against science itself in terms of, like, what is the fastest a person can possibly run 25 miles? it's so basic. You just turn up in as few clothes as possible and with these tiny little shoes on, you know, really light shoes, and you just try and kill yourself over 26.2 miles. And the person who does it most effectively, who can take the most pain, who's in the best shape, who's brave enough to try to be aggressive from a long way out, who can somehow hold on, that's what you're testing. I mean, it's on one level, that sounds so boring, but it couldn't be more interesting when you realize what's at stake. It's partly to do with the socioeconomics of the situation. It's partly to do with the aesthetics of it. Runners look extraordinarily beautiful when they're running. Like these top guys. I mean, it's a weird thing to say about a bunch of guys at the the front of a marathon or a bunch of women at the front of a marathon. They do look astonishingly beautiful. They're running at 13 miles an hour. You know, try doing it on a treadmill. I mean, it's, you know, I can do it for two minutes. Yeah. It is like kind of a weird sort of performance art. But at the same time, their bodies are exploding inside. Right. They're getting so hot and uh, they're in so much pain. And all the time it's this kind of really gracious act. I just, you know, something about that was really interesting to me as well. So there's this, there's one strand in the book, which is um, the story of these Kenyans in this training camp. And then there are these other disparate strands that go into the history of marathoning and the science uh, of marathon running. And the one that really has lingered with me, and it actually refers back to something we talked about, what you were talking about, you know, is war reporting more dangerous now than it was at some other historical period? And there's this repeating theme in running that people think that in their own era, we've somehow hit the wall and we've actually perfected things. You know, in 1925, people are thinking that um, they've actually figured out how how fast people can go and we're not going to improve anymore, which I think says a lot about us as people. I think a lot of topics you could write a narrative about people being wrong in thinking that they were at the apex. Um, But you, as the writer of this book, had to choose a specific historical moment, which is now, and and freeze that narrative uh, for all time. What was that like as a challenge, like thinking about, all right, well, Someone's going to read this in, in 10 years, and, I, and I'm going to have to make pronouncements, basically, about marathoning. Yeah, I think that everyone who makes a pronouncement about anything ever is always made to look stupid. You know, anything, anyone that says, like, in 25 years, we'll all be, you know, flying, you know, space cars yeah. and monorails, you know, everywhere or whatever it is. Everyone's always made to look so stupid, whatever, you know, kind of futurism um, you pronounce. So with marathon running, everyone's always said, you know, here's the limit. And, you know, I just can't see us getting any faster. But we always do somehow. And so the thing that they don't take away from that is everyone always gets faster. Yeah. I mean, having read the book, I don't even think that there's a clear understanding of why people get faster. The only consistent pattern is people get faster. Yeah. We don't always know why. It's just to do with we set ourselves a limit. 
and then we inch past it. Which is primarily a psychological yeah. idea, which is people seem to run a second faster than whatever that bar they've set out for themselves. Very rarely is the jump, you know, oh, someone beat the record by a minute and 20 seconds. It's usually just a little bit faster. And there's even, I think you refer to in the book, um, examples of where people were misled on the pace and actually run basically at a superhuman clip because they don't realize that they are running faster than anyone's ever run before. So a couple of examples of that in the book, but there was this incredible experiment in the northeast of England uh, where cyclists were made to race against their personal best, but the scientists had fooled them uh, because the avatar that they were racing, they thought represented their personal best, but in fact was 2% faster and all of them beat the avatar, so they went more than 2% faster than their personal best because they were trying to beat their personal best. Yes. In fact, they made a huge improvement. There was no way that they thought that they could race that time. They thought it was possible to just beat their personal best. Instead, they'd gone way past it. So that was so cool to me, you know, to learn, like, our brains are telling us this weird stuff all the time. And the reason why our brains are telling us that is because our brains don't want us to die. Yeah. They don't want our heart to stop. You know, it's a it's a survival mechanism. There is a limit. We're not going to run it in an hour. Yeah. But also, I think, you know, we're obviously going to run it faster than we do now. So you're having these interesting psychological insights that are from the history of marathon, and you're, you're noticing these patterns of people making these grand pronouncements and being wrong, and you're figuring out things like people tend to beat the record by one second. Maybe that's something that's hardwired into our brains, not our muscles. Are you sharing that back with a guy like um, Jeffrey Mutai, who's the fastest marathoner in the world? They just think they can get faster. They all they've got that incredibly positive attitude, and you know, Jeffrey's right at the end of his career. He's not getting better. He's getting much worse, and he still thinks he could beat the world record. Yeah, every time he goes out, he's, he's how old now? He's thirty four, but he's run a lot of marathons. Yeah, you know, he's past his peak. He hasn't run a good marathon for a couple of years. Yeah, he really hasn't done anything. And he still thinks every time he goes out, this is my time. They just get themselves into a space where they think stuff is possible. And sometimes it is. Do you maintain those relationships now that yeah, the book's Yeah, he out? sent me a picture of his kids the other yeah. day, his two little daughters, and I sent him one back. And we have a nice relationship where, like, I don't, you know, text him all the time. But, you know, before a big race, I'd always send him a note just saying, you know, go get him or something. I mean, he's just a, he's just a lovely guy. I think when it, it comes to uh, athletics um, and you when you when you come to answer a question like uh, why are Kenyans such good runners you can you can encounter that question on so many levels and and that's we have a tendency in sports to map our own narratives over ideas like that is it physiological is it based on the circumstances that people grow up in and in many ways, I think we, we oversimplify uh, questions like that and we say, here's this reason. So as you built up the case of this is why running is happening in Kenya, what what were the kind of tensions in terms of the explanations you were getting for that? If you say that the, this particular group of people, the Kalenjin in Kenya, who, won, who win like 80% yes. of all marathons in the world, if you say that this group of five million people have special physiological traits, are you doing down, you know, their achievements? Because the, those traits are not unique to this group of people, right? And if 
Americans decided in large numbers that marathoning was their way out. You know, they, you know, the talent would exist here too. Right. And we do produce that talent. It's just at football and basketball yeah. for the most part. And yeah. that is a way out. It's like short twitch sports. Hundreds of thousands of people try to, uh, you know, exactly. become professional out in America. Exactly. So um, I feel like, you know, the, the physiological stuff was always less interesting to me mm-hmm. because once you've accepted that, you know, these guys are good at running for the reasons they're good at running, like, you know, they came from the Nile Valley and they live really high now. So they have all that kind of benefit from the altitude training and what have you. Why are certain Kenyans better than the others? What does it take to be great within Kenya? And that was really the interesting question. Like, so, okay, a lot of these guys look like they should be good at running. They're really thin and they, you know, they have a grace in motion and they all ran to school as ki- you know, as kids. And that's why their feet are really strong. But why is Joffrey Mutai so why was he so much better than all these other people that did that? And that and you know, you come back to the mind and uh, you know, certain types of character traits right. which are much more interesting in terms of narrative as well. Maybe that's why I look for them. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's less interesting to talk about how thin someone's ankles are. Well, and you have these phenomenons where when you talk about the best, yeah, it's a question of out of how many people is that elite group being selected. I remember re- there's a statistic that was uh, going around about, uh, sorry, I'm talking about the NBA constantly, the, among centers. Uh, if you look at uh, men who are over seven feet tall, who live in America and are between 18 and 35 years old, uh, about 25% of them play in the NBA. Basically, we're not even saying that you have to be particularly good um, in amongst seven footers to make it to the NBA. Uh, the top uh, quarter make the NBA. Um, to be a point guard in the NBA, you need to be in the top point oh 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 one percent of yeah. of players and runners. It's even like even a even a uh, deeper narrowing. I mean, we're talking about there's only a few hundred runners in in the world who are even getting paid at all i would yeah, think um, less, less so when you're thinking about these like few people being pulled out of a giant giant population how do you control for the idea of randomness or you know when you see someone like mutai are you th- thinking everything about this guy signals something about what it takes to be an elite runner or are you also thinking this guy could be an aberration. I mean, we have all of these different kinds of stories that have led to becoming elite marathoners. Yeah, I did think about that quite a lot. And I remember watching this really, really um, tiny guy called Segai Kabede yeah. winning in London. He's like five foot one or something. You know, he's like, he's so tiny. I once had a picture taken with him at a party in Ethiopia. And it's honestly, I look like owner and pet. You know? <laughs> and uh, he won the London Marathon. And he doesn't really fit the mold of what is accepted as like the fastest marathon runners now. And suddenly I think, well, if you win a marathon, then suddenly you've got the perfect body right. for winning a marathon because you've just done it. The book made me think a lot about um, science and our mis- like how we can mistake things within science because yeah. we don't. There are certain unknowables like what is the fastest possible marathon um, that we can try to apply all of these theorems to. But... I would say the conclusion of the book is people can't know how fast people no, are going to be able to run. We don't know. Yeah. How could you know? 
like it's like saying, you know, what's the weather going to be like in a hundred years? If we were at like one fifty eight right now, we yeah. would probably not see the same intensity trying to get to one fifty five. We just say we're going really fast. Yeah, it's it, so it's so weird how our brains work. It's just this: the, we build up these, you know, big numbers. You know, yeah. there was another thing that's actually not in the book: the amount of um, people who finish at like four hours or just around three hours thirty or three hours in a marathon people hugely cluster around uh, out of a big field out of 50,000 people people really cluster around those yeah. but obviously that doesn't make any sense you know like it should be an even distribution all the way down to you know the fastest people well and the length of the race is fairly arbitrary it's like it's a bunch of compound arbitrary decisions that are, were then uh, reverse engineering yeah. um, hu- uh, how a human interacts with those yeah I found that all really interesting. And then ultimately, where you get to is, what do the people who are at the very, very top, how do they view it? Yeah. And eventually, you see, they don't think about it in the same way that I think about it. They think about just winning the race. And if they break the world record, then great. And if they don't, nobody cries. You know, like, they don't think about it the way that we think about it. And what what excites you going forward, like uh, having the book done now? Well, I'm doing. I did a. I did a long piece for the um, for the New Yorker. Uh, like, came out three months ago, I think. Yeah. So I'm. Do, I'm working on a couple more things for that. That was the one about um, the ownership of a house in London. That's it. Yeah. So that story is. That was. A, I really enjoyed that story. That story struck me as a very difficult to research piece. Um, you basically are uh, researching uh, something that people are intentionally trying to obscure. Yeah. So it took me a huge amount of time that piece. Is that because the New York, like the New Yorker, requires a certain? No, I just couldn't do it. Oh, okay. I just, I just couldn't find out who owned the house for for a long, long time, for like six months. Were, I couldn't, I couldn't find out who. Did owned you the consider house. Uh, giving up? Yes, but then I thought I've got a commission from the New Yorker. Like, how yeah. how often have you thought about what how cool it would be to get a commission from the New Yorker? Do you think that they knew, well, like the people who who turned out to be the owners, that the there Gurievs? was, that, yeah, that there was a you know a, a young no. a young man working for the New Yorker trying to figure out who they were? No, and I assume they do know that now. They did because we, um, you know, the New Yorker takes uh, you know right to reply pretty seriously. So like a week out, you know, we sent their lawyer uh, a note saying we're going to write about the house, we're going to say these things about the house, you know, like the normal fact checking procedure, which was. Uh, pretty intense because you know they then came back and i assume they were not happy about they it. they were not entirely happy no because i mean it's a it's kind of an in- incredible thing um to find out out of the blue that someone has written a story about your secret ownership of a mansion <laughs> so, it's, an it's never happened surprise. to me yeah uh, i guess maybe maybe that's more commonplace in, in london uh in new york it, it just it seems like a uh, a strange thing to encounter uh out of uh, as a surprise did they dispute factually things that you said or yes. did they dispute your right to reveal um no, private. once they knew we had it, yeah, I think they said, "Okay, oh, okay. kind of fair game." They weren't the- like, "What? No, we don't." Oh, well, the wording was different because because it's actually owned by an offshore trust. Yeah, they said, "Actually, no, the company owns it." I think the wording that we got to in the final piece was, "We were indirect beneficiaries of a company that owns Wittenhurst," and then they said, "Well, it was always intended for the use of the family." I was like, "So, so you own, the so house. you own the house." <laughs> 
<laughs> but no, they wouldn't. No, no, say- no. We bought it because we wanted to use it ourselves. Like, yeah, uh, it was really. It was like this weird kind of roundabout. Yeah, thing. but for some reason, it made them feel better to say that there were a lot of things that they were not happy about. I mean, huge amounts of things that they were not. But like, we had the reporting done, and we had it really well sourced, and so. The really cool thing about working for The New Yorker, apart from the fact that they turn out that magazine every week, which is just, you know, unbelievable, is that they're all tough. You know, they all sound extremely polite and everyone is very polite to each other, but they're so tough. Yeah. These are really aggressive, you know, notes were coming back. And we were like, well, you know, we've, you know, we've we've checked this and we have like a number of sources. So, you know, we're going to stand by that. And it was just very, very nice working on that, you know, at the end. I think a lot of publications might have said, okay, this is, you know, getting yeah. too hot now. Or or they might have said, we're not interested in a story like this because it's going to be like a legal headache and we don't want to deal with it. So, yeah, like, it don't, so even, cool. don't even try and figure this out. And then I think actually, you know, it seems like a kind of a one level kind of a silly story about a big house. Yeah. A bit kind of town and country or whatever, you know, like look at their crazy chandeliers sort of thing. But on some level, it's like that's the story of like how our cities are getting hollowed out. I was going to say, I, like, I, I don't know if uh, all around the world that resonates, but at least here in New York, this has been a, a pretty major issue of the last few years is realizing that a huge amount of real estate in the city is both unoccupied and is in some way a way to stash cash. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's becoming one of the um, the best black market assets is a Manhattan apartment. Well, the New York Times did this really, really good series oh, on um, the, yeah. like the Lincoln Circle. Yeah, uh, that came out like I was just we were just. Um, oh, were you neck and neck with that that article? I was just. I was like a month afterwards. Did that uh, rattle you when it came out? It did rattle me because I thought, I wonder what they're going to do next. Yeah, because I was like, maybe they've done this on this building, and now they're going to go and like do crazy stuff all around. You're starting to get letters from the lawyers that are addressed to the New York Times instead of the New Yorker. <laughs> no, I was just, I was really freaked out that, I'm trying to work it out. The piece came out in June, the Wittenhurst piece, which is this big house in London. It came out in June. I, I got the commission to write that in April the year before. And I hadn't exactly been dragging my feet. You know, I've been doing other things, but I've been working on it like pretty much the whole time. And from December, it was just before Christmas that I found out who owned the house. And like things started to unlock for me. So I'd had like seven months of just banging my head against the brick wall. Yeah. Then I'd found it out through, you know, a bit of luck and quite a lot of just hanging around. And then had to like fill in the gaps with all this other reporting. I had a draft waiting at the New Yorker and like this thing came out and I was like, oh my God, does that mean they don't want to do it? You know, I was just waiting for my heart to break into like a hundred pieces. In terms of the economics, we try to talk to people here who are freelancers you are um uh, a british freelancer of which there are not a huge number who who do what you do um are you able to cobble together a stable living doing stuff out of um your your live in london i live in manchester manchester so uh, i used to live in london until march uh when we moved to manchester because it's cheaper and it's very hard to live in London for a lot of the reasons that I explored in that yeah. Wittenhouse piece. Yeah, because <laughs> um, your house was bought by a Russian billionaire. Yeah, or the the bigger house down the road. Anyway, yeah. so the short answer is it's quite hard at times. Um, but you know what's really helped is you know I got a book deal. I've got another book deal on the on the way, so that helps to kind of you know you get kind of lumps. Yeah, not huge lumps, but lumps that help you kind of which you can smooth out over the year. I'm doing 
you know, work for magazines that I really, really like, and I get commissions pretty often. You know, I still write for British GQ. You know, I can do stuff for Guardian Long Reads, The New Yorkers. You know, commission me to do a couple more things. You know, like there's, you know, there's a lot of work. Yeah, there's just a limit to how much time because. I just take so long doing this stuff. Is that something? I mean, do you think, God, I got to start figuring out some quick stories to like, do? What's you know, what's what could I do that was really quick? Yeah, you know, I need like one story in the year to be both well paying and really quick. Yeah, but I just haven't found a lot of those recently. <laughs> right. If you have any really short uh, story ideas for Ed to sell, uh, send them send them in. I would take uh, any any suggestions at this point. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming in. This was great. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. That was your long-form podcast. Thanks very much to Ed Caesar for coming in on his trip over here to New York City. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Molly Bain, our sponsors, Prudential, the podcast, The Message from Penoply, Masterclass, MailChimp, and of course, Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, in just a few minutes, you can invest in professionally vetted real estate investments. Please join thousands of other investors by registering at no cost at realtyshares.com slash longform. You'll be supporting this show, which will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>